0: It's Your love that makes me see. It's Your word that comforts me. By Your blood, we have been saved. On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. If you remain standing and take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, as we look at the final two verses in this letter, bringing our study in the book of James to a conclusion. So James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20 is our text for the morning. James chapter 5 verses 19 and 20, if you'll follow along as I read our text, beginning now in verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And we'll cover a multitude of sins. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word and our time together in it. You may be seated. If every Christian is not familiar with Second Timothy chapter three verses sixteen and seventeen, uh, you should be, because in those two verses the Apostle Paul made what many believe to be the most important statement in the Bible about the Bible. And he said there in those verses, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Now think for a moment about those words, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, equipped for every good work. If those describe the the function of scripture, then the epistle of James has served us well. I mean, today is our 28th and final study in this remarkable little New Testament book, and I think all who have been here for these 28 messages would agree that James has taught us much. He's taught us much about the relationship between faith and good works, about the nature of trials and temptations, and in our last uh, three studies, the importance of prayer in all of life's experiences. I mean, just to name a few things. And I hope that by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we've been trained in how to live a righteous life. By James, I mean the purpose of James is 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 a very practical one, and in keeping with what Paul said in Second Timothy three, namely, it's to equip us for every good work. And I can only hope and pray that the impact James has had on our lives will never come to an end. Now, as we look at this final passage, we we see that unlike most other New Testament epistles, James has no formal conclusion. There are no words of personal recognition or greeting, no requests for prayer, no biographical information about the author, no exhortation to greet one another with a holy kiss or, you know, I hope by God's grace to see your faces soon or, or any such concluding comment. The book of James just rather ends rather abruptly. And so the question is why? I mean, why uh, such an abrupt ending? Well, obviously, it's intentional on James' part. And without talking with James, which is impossible, we can only speculate. But I believe the abrupt ending is perhaps because James wanted to leave us with a sense of personal urgency Great personal urgency as we consider the critical importance of his final exhortation, which flows out of the theme of the preceding verses where he urged his readers to confess their sins to one another, forgive one another, and to pray for one another, especially in times of sickness or affliction. And now in these final two verses, James deals with our responsibility toward those who are spiritually sick. That is, those who have wandered from the truth. Because wandering from the truth by a child of God results in discipline from the Lord. And this discipline may come in the form of physical illness and and even in some cases, death. And this being the case, it is of utmost importance that other brothers and sisters in Christ be there to help. To be involved in restoring the one who has wandered away. And this is the focus of James as he closes his letter. His final words of instruction here have a sense of urgency and and yet pastoral concern as he encourages us to lovingly seek out those who have wandered and, and to restore them. One man said, They manifest in a special way the spirit of love and practical service which runs like a golden thread through the entire epistle. And that's, that's exactly right. Well, let's look now at verse 19 where James speaks about uh, this wanderer. Look at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. And so he begins in verse 19 with the word brothers. And as we've learned, this word brother speaks of siblings in God's family. So we could read this as brothers and sisters. And by saying this, James is adding a special note of personal identification and love. And so when he is teaching them, it's, it is as brothers. When he is uh, you know, exhorting them, uh, rebuking them, it's, it's as brothers. When he's challenging them, it's as brothers. When he's encouraging them, it's as brothers. When he's warning them, it's as brothers. And that word brothers has set the tone of this entire book, but especially uh, of these last two verses. I mean, this is the language of family. And this is the language of family because the church is a family, God's family. The church is a household of brothers and sisters adopted through faith in Christ who call God Abba Father. And there is nothing like the family of God. Spurgeon said the church is the sweetest place on earth. There's nothing like the family of God. And to be a part of the family of God is a gift of God's grace. And each one of us should recognize the glory of it and invest our lives in it. And So let me ask you, do you love your church family? Well, thank you. (laughs) And if so, then love them and care for them and watch out for them. I mean, isn't that what families do? It certainly is. You see, you need a church family to care for you spiritually in a number of ways. But here in our text, James gives us one very important reason we need our church family. And that is because sometimes those in the family get caught up in sin. Look back at the verse. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. First of all, notice first of all that James says, if, if. He's not necessarily referring to an actual instance in the past. He doesn't assume that that people within the churches he's writing to have wandered away, but the fact that he raises this issue makes it seem probable in the future. And the probabilities of the future are often based on the occurrences of the past. And no doubt James had seen Christians go astray, and therefore he knew that it was possible for anyone to turn from the truth. Because you'll notice he says, if anyone, you know, if someone, any man, any woman, if anyone, and this is very sobering. And this is really a flashing red light to warn his readers and all believers that that this is possible for anyone. None of us should should ever imagine for even a moment that we are immune to this or above this or that, that this could never happen to us. Because sheep are prone to go astray. As one man said, you don't find any story in the Bible about sheep looking for a straying shepherd. You know, sheep can and do go astray. I mean, just as the the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing says. O to grace, how great a debtor, daily I am constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it, seal it for thy courts above. It can happen to any one of us. And we should never imagine, again, for a moment that, that it couldn't. And as the Apostle Paul warned the Corinthians, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Each and every one of us is capable of wandering from the truth, or backsliding is another way to put it. That's what we're speaking about. And so James says, anyone among you. I mean, he's writing to the church, so anyone among you, that is, anyone in the church. And this and the fact that he refers to them as brothers and sisters indicates that he is clearly speaking about believers. He is not writing to people outside of the church. He's not writing to those who have never come to the truth in the first place. Instead, he is pointing out a very real danger for Christians. And this is a danger that every believer must face very soberly. And certainly the the possibility exists that a person who wanders uh, from the truth is is not a believer. But we shouldn't be quick to write someone off that way. Rather, we we should give give him or her the benefit of the doubt until proven otherwise. And the fact is, with our limited wisdom and insight, we can't... Uh, with absolute certainty discern the difference between a a backsliding believer who's temporarily slipped away in truth and life but is still secure in Christ and without doubt will be brought back? And on the other hand, the almost identical evidence which says that someone within the visible church doesn't truly belong to Christ at all? And the fact is, the only evidence that we have of one another is what we profess with our lips and live in our lives. And we're not privy to the secrets of another person's heart or to the secret counsels of God. But in this context, in this passage, James is addressing the situation of believers who have gone astray. He's not talking about leading unbelievers to salvation, but rather he's referring to restoring Christians who have temporarily wandered from the truth. Well, What does he mean by wander? I mean, what does that mean? Well, the word translated here as wander comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word, planet. I mean, unlike stars, which kept their place in relation to other heavenly lights, planets appeared to drift and and wander through the night sky. So this word depicts someone who has lost his way and, and is just wandering aimlessly. It's the word Jesus used in Matthew eighteen twelve when he said, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the 99 and go to the mountains to seek the one that is straying or the one that is wandering? It's also used in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, where it is said that a high priest must be one who can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray or wandering since he himself is also subject the weakness. And so James says this person has wandered from the truth. Well, what, what does he mean, the truth? Well, in the broadest sense, the truth is the whole of God's Word. Here, it may relate to either doctrine or conduct, or perhaps both. Because for James, as we've learned, correct doctrine cannot be separated from correct behavior. It's not something, something the truth is not something only to believe or to understand. It is also something to practice and something that we're to live by. But whether the meaning of truth here is doctrinal or moral or both, James considers wandering from it to be something that is extremely serious. I mean, he does not have in mind here a mere difference of opinion on some minor point of doctrine or some relatively small issue in in someone's conduct. What he's talking about here is a serious spiritual lapse. And how easy it is to wander from the truth both doctrinally and morally. You know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, all three are constantly working and and battling against the truth of God. I mean, the the, the warning here is, is obvious. And, you know, backsliding never happens overnight. It never begins with, you know, an outrageous, scandalous sin. No, it always begins quietly, slowly, subtly, insidiously. You know, it begins with things like neglecting prayer, neglecting reading your Bible, neglecting uh, attending corporate worship with other believers, and and a host of other things, all of which tend to slowly over time lead the child of of God away from the truth. So the picture here is not of a sudden, impulsive U-turn, you know, some uh, impetuous, violent rebellion, this headlong rush into sin. I mean, certainly a brother can be overtaken in a fault, but usually the sin is the result of slow, gradual, spiritual decline. That's what James is depicting here. A wandering, a subtle and gradual loosening of one's doctrinal or moral convictions, a slow, drifting, with the tide that takes someone in to a serious spiritual lapse. And so it's no surprise that the New Testament is full of warnings about this kind of danger. As one man said, the permanent presence of the old nature guarantees that in the Christian life there is no victory without vigilance. In Thomas Watson's words, a wandering heart needs a watchful eye. We have seen this truth stated earlier in James' letter, but it needs to be underlined here. No man is so far advanced along the Christian pathway, so knowledgeable in the scriptures, so experienced in Christian service, so prominent in church affairs, that he is beyond the reach of Satan or the treachery of his own heart. The deadly subtlety of sin should constantly drive us to our knees. So, what James is describing here is a serious, dangerous condition where someone in the spiritual family, a believer in Christ, has wandered from the truth of Christianity and has put themselves in danger of God's divine discipline. And James now tells us what to do when we see someone straying from the truth. Look back at verse 19. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and then he says and someone brings him back and someone brings him back so someone or anyone among you that is anyone in the church james is is pointing out the fact that restoring a wandering brother or sister is the responsibility of every believer and by implication this is this is considered to be not only a privilege but also a duty Every member of the family of God has a duty and a responsibility to care for one another. And this duty we're speaking of here is not just for the pastor and the elders or, or other leaders in the church. This is something that is shared by us all. And this is not a ministry that we can opt out of by piously stating, well, you know, hey, the Lord will bring him or her back or the Holy Spirit will convict the wanderer. Well, sure. The Lord might directly intervene, but normally he uses secondary causes to accomplish his work. That means us. That means you and I. This is a ministry that involves each one of us. And so James is telling us that no Christian is to stand idly by while another Christian gradually drifts into sin and just say, well, hey, you know, each one of us has to give an account of himself, and bottom line is that it's really none of my business. Oh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. The men and women in this local church, as in every local church, are not like the men and women in the world who can live however they please and believe whatever they want and never be bothered or held accountable. We are all accountable to one another because we are a spiritual family in the truest and yet most loving sense. And as the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian Christians, we're to speak truth with our neighbors, for we are members of one another. So you might be thinking right now, well, Pastor Jim, are you saying that I'm to be my brother's keeper? Absolutely. Of course you are. You're your sister's keeper too. We are to speak lovingly into each other's lives and warn one another if we see any one person wandering from the truth so you're not exempt from obeying this passage. You can't say, well, I don't, I don't have any business sticking my nose into his or her business. After all, it's a free country and they can just do whatever they please. Well, listen, you might say that about the person who lives across the street from you or some candidate running for political office or perhaps the individual you work with uh, at the office, but you cannot and must not say that about the believer who worships God next to you and celebrates the Lord's Supper with you on a regular basis. And James is not the only biblical author who makes this point. In his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul said this in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in a transgression, speaking about believers, because he said brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. But neither Paul nor James nor any other biblical author is telling us to meddle in someone's private affairs where we have no business sticking our noses. I mean, James is not calling for Christians to be fault-finding busybodies who spend their time sniffing around in the church, you know, looking for other people's problems. We're not to act like the, the secret police or eavesdroppers who were always on the lookout for the slightest mistake on the part of others. I mean, nobody wants to be under that kind of scrutiny. And as I said a moment ago, James is not talking about a mere difference of opinion on some minor point of doctrine. He's not talking about Christian liberties or some relatively small issue in someone's conduct because there are some personal matters that just should be overlooked because we are all sinners who, as James said, stumble in many ways. And we are all in need of God's grace and forgiveness on a daily basis. What James clearly has in mind are those believers who have strayed into serious sin and error and need to be rescued and the church needs to be protected. So we're talking about cases of serious open sin. You know, the kind of problems that call for church discipline if the brother or sister remains unrepentant and continues in their sin. And James is calling on us to lovingly and gently help the one who has wandered from the truth. I mean, when a believer is aware of another believer's wandering, that knowledge carries with it responsibility for action. You say, well, what's the nature of this responsibility? Well, James says it's to bring them back, verse 19. Verse 20, it's to bring them back from their wandering. But what does that mean, bring them back? Well, the word translated, brings him back, means to cause to turn to. It means to cause someone to return to a a point or area where one has been before with an emphasis on turning around to return to, to go back to. And unfortunately, the Old King James Version translates this word as convert. That is a poor translation because it, it does not carry the theologically loaded idea of salvation. That, that's just a, a poor translation of the word. Because it suggests that this person who is wandering is an unbeliever and you are making an effort to help him or her come to saving faith in Christ. Well, of course, we we all should be able and open to leading a person to personal faith in Christ. But that's not what James is talking about here. The idea here is to cause someone to return to a point or area where they have been before. It's to turn around or to turn back another Christian believer from going in the wrong moral or theological direction. And so to bring back the wandering person is to bring him or her back to the way of truth, to turn them back to the God who saved them in the first place. And Jesus used the same word of Simon Peter when he said in Luke 22:32, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, same word, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, James doesn't explain just how the Christian is to go about restoring a wandering brother or sister. I mean, from the context, I I think it's safe safe to say, uh, safe to assume that intercessory prayer plays a large part in it, as we saw over the last three weeks. But though James doesn't explain the how-to, we can learn from Jesus' instruction in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, how we're to restore a fallen Christian. You know, if we have first-hand knowledge that a brother or sister has fallen into sin, Jesus said we are to go to them and tell them their fault face-to-face and privately. Jesus also made our object positive and constructive. He said that we are to seek to gain him. Just as Paul said in Galatians 6.1, we are to restore him. And as James says in our text, we are to turn him back. And then Jesus said, if he hears you, if he receives what you say, then the matter is settled. But if he will not agree, then you're to ask one or two spiritual people to go with you. If he will still not settle the matter, then the whole church must be informed and and take steps of discipline. But you hope and pray that, that it never comes to that. Because the object, the primary object, is restoration and reconciliation. You want to gain your brother. You want him to repent, to to turn from his sin. You want to turn him back. You want to restore him. That's the how-to from Jesus. And we can learn from the Apostle Paul uh, the attitude or the spirit in which this is to be done. And all of this is to be done in the spirit of Galatians 6.1. We, we've already read it, but let me read it again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Now the word restore in that verse is a term for healing that means to put in order, to restore to its former condition. And in secular Greek culture, it was used in medicine described setting a broken bone or or putting back in place a dislocated joint. It was used in the New Testament for mending and repairing fishing nets. And so what Paul is saying is that in the same way that a broken bone needs to be set and torn nets need to be mended and repaired, you know, restored to their former condition, a sinner, a sinning believer needs to be put back in order. They need help. They need restoration. We're not to despise or condemn them in our hearts or to anyone else for that matter. And if they're suffering as a result of their sin, we're not to say, well, serves them right, what do they expect? Nor are we to run to the pastor and tell, tell on them or, or gossip about them to our friends in the congregation. No, we are to restore them. You know, Paul said, through love, serve one another. And one way we do that is to restore the fallen brother or sister. And we certainly don't restore them by beating them down with their guilt and making them feel like an outcast. We don't destroy a broken life by breaking the person even more. I mean, Paul's instruction here is positive. The goal is to put the broken ones back together. You know, so be a person who cares for your brothers and sisters, not one who is, is trying to be everybody's accountability partner. I mean, ultimately, only Jesus can forgive and restore. I mean, he puts back together our broken-down wreck of a spiritual life. When the woman caught in adultery was brought to Jesus, the people wanted to stone her. But Jesus wasn't interested in destroying this woman. He was interested in restoring her. You know, he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. That should be the attitude of of Christ's followers as well. You know, be concerned for your broken brother and sister, and like Jesus, lead them to restoration, and as they go, and and sin no more. So this process of, of restoration is like setting a broken bone. But doing that will inevitably cause momentary pain but it's inflicting healing pain. And so if you're, if you're really spiritual, and if you're really a, a true friend, you'll do that humbly, carefully, gently. If someone, someone in the church wanders from the truth and falls into sin, the other members are to be prepared to rescue the wanderer, to, to bring him back, because we are our brother's keeper. Professor Howard Hendricks of Dallas Seminary tells a story of of a young man who after straying far from the Lord was finally brought back by the help of a friend who loved him unconditionally. And when he was fully restored, Dr. Hendricks asked him what it felt like when he was straying from God. This is what the man said. He said, it seemed like I was being pulled farther and farther out to sea in the deep water. And all my friends were standing on the shoreline, hurling accusations at me about justice, condemnation, and sin. Then he added, But there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me, and he wouldn't let me go. I fought him. But he withstood my fighting. He grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and managed to pull me to shore. And by the grace of God, he was the single reason I was restored. The man refused to let me go. That's what we're talking about. James is calling for us to be spiritual lifeguards for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now in verse 20, James tells us that there are two results from successfully bringing back a sinner from his or her wandering from the truth. Look at verse 20. Let him know, which can be understood as... Brothers, be assured of this. So brothers, be assured of this, that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And so James says, whoever, in other words, anyone, any believer in the local church who brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul, the soul of the wanderer, from death. And the word soul here in verse 20 is used as a comprehensive term that generally refers to the life of the individual. It does not mean simply the immaterial or spiritual dimension of an individual. It simply means the person as a whole, both the physical and non-physical dimensions of our being. And so we could as easily translate this, we'll save him from death or we'll save her from death. Now in the Bible, when we think of death, we usually think of physical death, separating the soul from the body, or spiritual death, separating the soul from God, and then eternal death, separating both body and soul from God forever. But what does death mean in light of the fact that James is speaking to believers? Well, some commentators deal with this by saying that that James is not referring to believers at all in these verses. They say that he's referring to those who merely profess to be believers. So he's introducing a, a third group here, which he never really introduced. But they say that he's referring to those who merely profess to be believers, but they're not true believers at all, and, and this is why they turned away from the truth. Therefore, the death spoken of here by James refers to the spiritual and eternal death that the unconverted will experience if they're not brought to faith. And then so And so whoever brings the unbeliever to faith in Christ will save their soul from the spiritual and eternal death that comes to all believers. And if you disregard the context, then you might think that that's what it says. But that is not what James is speaking about. He's not referring here to evangelizing the lost. Because, again, first of all, his words are addressed to Christian brothers and sisters. He speaks of anyone among you that is in the church. So James is clearly speaking to believers, about believers, wandering from the truth and being restored. We also need to take note of how the word save is is used in the immediate context of James 5. It should be defined in light of how James has just used it. Just a few verses earlier in in verse 15 of chapter 5, James, James used the term save to describe restoration from physical illness. So this word save is not synonymous with salvation. James used it to describe restoration from physical illness. And so in verses 14 and 15, just above this, it's de- he was speaking of deliverance and, and restoration from a serious physical illness, which could have resulted in physical death if it had not been healed. Which would indicate that the death James speaks of here is also physical death, not spiritual death. And so back to the question, what what does death mean then in light of the fact that James is speaking to believers? Well, we have to understand, first of all, that through faith in Christ, all believers are saved from spiritual and eternal death. They will never perish, right? That's what the Bible says. But sin may lead to the death of a believer in, in this way, I mean, he could commit some sin that would be the direct cause of death. He could drink too much alcohol and die. He could overdose on drugs and die. So he could commit some sin that would be the direct cause of death. Sin may also lead to the death of, uh, uh, may lead to the death of a believer's spiritual ministry, the death of a relationship, the death of a marriage, a family, the death of a partnership. One commentator suggested it means a death-like existence for the sinning believer. He said Jewish Christians saw people as either traveling the path of life, walking with Christ by the Spirit, or the path of death, walking apart from Christ in the flesh. This death-like existence is the opposite of the abundant life Christ promised. No longer can the sinning believer, walking in the flesh in a death-like existence, live out the true life in the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. For those walking in death, gone are the signs of spiritual vitality, like fading memories of a estranged friend. There's also another aspect of the death James speaks of. If a believer persists in willful, unrepentant sin, And he may pay the penalty of physical death. God may take him or her home early. You say, well, how do we know that? Well, there is the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. They sinned by lying to the Holy Spirit about the money they gave to the church. And God took both of their lives. And then in Corinth... Because some believers in in the Corinthian church were partaking of the Lord's Supper unworthily. They brought judgment on themselves, and that is why Paul said, many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Some had died. They persisted in sin. They wouldn't repent, and so God took them home. God took them home early. And the Apostle John reminds us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 16, that even for believers, there is a sin leading to death. And so James is encouraging us here to be diligent to restore to repentance any believer, any brother or sister in Christ who has wandered from the truth because in doing so, we will have been instrumental in delivering or saving them from the possibility of premature physical death under the discipline of the Lord. You see, wandering from the truth is like the experience of getting lost in the mountains. You know, when hikers leave the trail. You know, they get confused, turned around, entangled, and lost. But if someone leads them back to the path, you know, someone comes, a park ranger or, or a search and rescue or, or someone else comes and leads them back to the trail, well, then the lost hikers have been saved from, from grief at the very least and possibly even from death. And so the primary emphasis of James is on our responsibility to be an instrument or means by which the restoration of a fellow believer who is wandering from the truth. And in doing so, we can be assured that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. And then secondly, James says, will cover a multitude of sins. Will cover a multitude of sins. And the word translated cover means to cause something to be covered over and hence not visible. It means to cover, to cover over, to hide, to to prevent something, including oneself, from being seen or, or discovered. And it means that sins are covered so as to be hidden from God's sight. You know, the same word is used by Peter when he writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. So the idea is that by bringing the wandering brother or sister to repentance, uh, there is forgiveness. And there are two main aspects of forgiveness mentioned in the Bible. One is the forgiveness that a person receives as part of his once-for-all, unrepeatable experience of justification when in terms of Uh, his standing before God, all of his sins, past, present, and future, are marked paid in full and treated as if they had never been committed. And then the second is the continuing need for the Christian to seek God's daily forgiveness of those sins which he commits in the course of his daily life. And it seems clear that this is what James has in mind here. As the Apostle John said of believers in 1 John chap- chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so when a wandering believer, one who is strayed from the truth of God's word, either in doctrine or in his conduct, turns from his sin back to God, back to where he once was, his sins are forgiven. In other words, a multitude of sins are covered. However vast that multitude may be, however great the wandering, however persistent the rebellion, however grievous the sin, however serious the error, however damaging the action, however erroneous the belief, however distant the drift. When God forgives, he forgives and he forgets. As the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he, God, remove our transgressions from us. I mean, when when, God, when, I, when we say God forgets, it's not that he loses it from his memory. I mean, he purposely chooses not to remember it anymore. And God's forgiveness is full and complete. I mean, God's own word in Isaiah 43.25 is that I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And yet even this is not the end of the story, because with the forgiveness of sins comes a renewal of fellowship, and the answer to the repentant wanderer's prayer, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I mean, isn't that amazing? I mean, isn't that comforting and and encouraging? As the psalmist said, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And so James' point is not that leading someone to repentance conceals or covers up a sin. Covering sin in this case signifies forgiving it, removing it, eliminating its guilt. I mean, sins that are pardoned by God are treated as if they had never been committed. That's just a wonderful, glorious truth. And obviously the work of saving, forgiving, and covering sins is the work of God. That's not anything we can do. It's a work of God. But as God saves and sustains us to the end, he uses other believers in the process. I mean, men and women who love him and who love one another are privileged to be God's instruments in saving a soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. And so, as important as prayer is in the body of Christ, and James five thirteen to 18 taught us that it's absolutely essential Sometimes prayer isn't enough. Sometimes merely praying for a brother or sister to turn their lives around isn't enough. You must actually and personally and literally get involved. You have to go to them and and lovingly and, and humbly insert yourself into their life and be used of God to turn them from the error of their way. We don't and don't necessarily think that it's it's going to be easy or that they're going to accept that they might totally reject it and you at first, but we have to keep after them in love. So by all means, continue to pray for one another. Pray that God would, would open their eyes to the danger of their ways. Pray that the Spirit would bring conviction to them of, of what they're doing, but don't stop there. Because God may be calling you to sit down with them and, and to show them the misdirection their lives have taken and in doing so, protect them from coming under the severe disciplinary hand of the Lord. A discipline that, that may well result and physical death. That's how serious this is. And with this in mind, we should ask, I mean, do you really care when you see a brother or sister losing his or her way, wandering from the truth? I mean, do you know of a brother or sister who's wandering from the truth, who needs your help? And if you do, are you going to make an effort to bring them back or are you going to callously just write them off as giving evidence that they were never saved in the first place? I mean, how self-righteous and sickening that is. What will you do about it? Will you ignore it? You know, rationalize doing nothing, or we obey James and, in the power of the Holy, the, with the, in the and with the power that the Holy Spirit provides, with humility and genuine, heartfelt love, step in and try to turn them around. Because as James makes unmistakably clear, this really is a matter of life and death. And so James exhorts us strongly, do everything in our strength to bring them back, that they might be saved from death and have their sins covered. And with that, this letter that is often stern and Hard-hitting reminds us as believers of the responsibility we have toward one another within the church to be involved in restoring those who have wandered from the truth. And so with these clear and practical words, James ends his letter without the customary greetings or any other concluding remarks or instructions. You know, in this epistle, James has demonstrated that the Christian faith is a serious matter, much more serious than uh, so many people in the church uh, today take it. It's a serious matter. It's not just a creed to recite. Rather, it's a life-transforming experience that shows itself in action. In the Christian faith, the true Christian faith is, is living and active. It's a living and active faith that affects the way we live and it's made evident by the fruit of our lives. As James has taught us, it is a faith that works. The faith that manifests itself in what we do and in what we say and in the wisdom we possess and practice. It is a faith that manifests itself in a vital relationship with God through prayer in all the experiences of life, and it is a faith that reaches out to brothers and sisters in Christ who have wandered from the truth, seeking to restore and reconcile them that they might be saved from death and their sins covered for the glory of God in Christ. So our question is, do we have a true and living and active faith? And I hope you can answer this morning in the affirmative. We're not talking about perfection. If that was the case, then none of us would, would, uh, would make it starting with me. But we should examine ourselves to make sure we are in the faith. And that that faith is actually manifested in our lives. And as we examine our lives, maybe we'll come to the, the place where we realize, no, my, my faith isn't real. It's never been real. I'm just a church person. Church person that takes pride in, you know, my goodness, my self-righteousness, takes pride in all the things I don't do. And that's about the extent of it. Well, whether you're a church person who's never trusted Christ, or you know that you're not a church person, you, you know that you're far from Christ. The good news is that uh, Christ today is calling you to come to him, that you might receive forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Because apart from Christ, your uh, default destination is not heaven. Heaven. I mean, that's a lie that people tell themselves to assuage their conscience. Man's default destination is an eternal hell. That's where all men are headed, apart from Christ, because all men have sinned. All men stand guilty before a holy God. I mean, God is our uh, creator. He, and therefore, he has the right to tell us how we're to live. And he is also our holy and righteous judge. And we will face him one day as our judge, apart from Christ. In fact, the verdict has already been passed. Guilty. The sentence is death. We're an unbeliever is just waiting for that sentence to be executed. But this same God who is our creator and our holy and righteous judge is also a God who is loving and merciful and gracious and kind. And don't ever forget that. And he is by nature a savior. And because of his great love and for no other reason, and the Council of the Trinity in eternity past, God set forth a plan by where a sinful man could have his sin forgiven and be brought into a right relationship with God and spend eternity with him in heaven. But for that to happen, someone had to pay for sin. Because you see, every single sin will be paid for. Every single sin will be paid for. Someone had to pay the price for sin. No one on earth could ever do that because we are all sinners by nature, by practice. And so God provided his own sacrifice, his perfect, sinless son. God so loved that he gave, and he gave his only begotten son, and Christ loved us as well. He loved us and gave himself for us in that he stepped out of eternity into time. He became what he was not, a man. He was fully God and fully man at the same time in one person. And he lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live. And then he was falsely accused, went to the cross, where on the cross he died the death that we deserve. So he lived the perfect sinless life we could never live, and then he died the death that we deserve for our sin. He died in our place. That's why we say that his death was a substitutionary atoning death. Christ died for sin, was buried, rose again the third day, after 40 days ascended back to heaven where he is today, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for all of those who belong to him. And one of these days he's going to come back and receive his bride, and take us to be with him. And the only, only way for a person to be saved is to humble themselves before God, acknowledge their absolute and utter sinfulness, their realization that they are on their way to eternal hell, and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the only hope of salvation and then asking God to forgive their sin, to receive them to himself, trusting in Christ's finished work alone for salvation. And if you're here this morning and you have never trusted in Christ alone for salvation, I I urge you to do so today. Because time is short. And the fact of the matter is, we never know what a day may bring. In fact, we don't know if we're going to draw our next breath. I'm not trying to scare you, it's just reality. But the fact of the matter is, there are some things a person should be scared of, and eternal hell is one of them. But we are all half a breath away. One heart beat away. One broken blood vessel away. That's how close death is and eternity is to each and every one of us. For those of us who are in Christ, hey, to die is gain, right? Absent from the body, present with the Lord. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Praise God. But for anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ alone, you can't say that. Heaven is not your destination. Rather, you are headed to an eternal hell where you will pay for your sin throughout eternity in a place of eternal torment, a place that is absolutely void of God's goodness, mercy, and grace. And you will be tormented in the presence of the Lamb and of the holy angels, Revelation tells us, for eternity, because every sin will be paid for. Sin is either paid for in Christ's redeeming sacrifice, or you will pay for it yourself in hell. So the choice is simple, heaven or hell. It's that simple. And so I urge you this morning, trust in Christ. Run to him as fast as you can run. Cast yourself upon his mercy because he is ready and willing to save. Turn to him today. Let's stand and pray. Set free. And Lord, give to us a passion for your Word, that we may grow and walk in all your ways. On behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530 530- 530 547-4400 That's 530-547-4400 Or write to us at P.O. Box 837 Palisadro, California 96073 You can also email us through the website at CCredding.com Thank you for listening and may God richly bless you. Growing.